I'm Vanessa Pritchard. Welcome to this podcast from Keep Believing Ministries. Today's message was given by Dr. Ray Pritchard. At Keep Believing Ministries, we want to encourage and equip people to keep believing in Jesus. You can find us online at www.keepbelieving.com. Stay tuned for this special podcast. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 for a message entitled, How a Terrorist Became an Evangelist. This is the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Begin this way. Christianity is supremely a religion of conversion. At the heart of our faith is this confidence that you do not have to stay the way you are. That what you were does not determine what you are. And what you are does not determine what you will be. Christianity is based on a deep belief that when you meet Jesus Christ, you are not just changed, you are not just born again, you actually become a new creation in Christ. You were something, and now through Jesus, you are something else. You know, there's a difference between religion and conversion. Religion is going through the motions. Religion is doing the outward things. Religion is coming to the church, the synagogue, the mosque, the community center, obeying the rules, giving your money, doing whatever the religion tells you to do. That is not conversion. That's just outward obedience to rules. Christianity is based on the concept that you can be changed. That long-held patterns can be changed. That prejudice can be broken. That hatred can be done away. That broken relationships can be healed and mended. That somebody who is far gone in sin can be radically changed sometimes in one blinding flash by the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes in. My friends, that is an utterly revolutionary claim in the 21st century because we are told over and over again in our culture, whatever you were, the way you were born, whatever habits or patterns or proclivities you may have, it's almost impolite today to say to people, you don't have to stay that way because our culture says, well, this is the way you are. Christianity is based on the concept that real change is possible. Let me say this another way. If you take the truth of conversion out of Christianity, we're no different than a social club. We're no different than a lunch club. We're no different than a group of people just getting together to pat each other on the back. You take that truth away, we have no message at all. So today, we're going to study the story of the single greatest conversion, not just in the Bible. This is the greatest conversion story in the Bible. More than that, I'm going to tell you, this is the most important conversion in the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. This is the story of a Christ-hating, Christian-persecuting man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who, converted on the road to Damascus, becomes a flaming evangelist, preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, 
who wrote about half the New Testament and whose words still teach us and lead us today. How important is this story? Let me tell you how important the story is. It's told to us three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. It's told a fourth time in the book of Galatians chapter 1. There's no other conversion story in the New Testament that is repeated like this. So then, we shall see what God does. What God does. Because that's really what this is about. This is about what God does. The story starts, verses 1 and 2, with a statement about Saul's fanaticism. Saul's fanaticism. Remember, at the end of Acts chapter 7, the great Stephen, who preached before the Sanhedrin, is stoned to death. Who is holding his cloak? This young man, Saul of Tarsus. We're told in Acts chapter 8, not only did he witness the death of Stephen, he heartily approved of it. Last week I told you, he did this. Door to door in Jerusalem. Any Christians there? Any Christians there? Any Christians there? Grabbing the Christians and dragging them off. Dragging them out. Taking them to prison. Now, chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Do not take that metaphorically. This is literal. This is literal. He was trying to kill every Christian he could find. That's why I call him a first century terrorist. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that up in Damascus, if he found any who belonged to, it's an interesting phrase here, the way. It's one of the early names for the Christian movement. They're called Christians later. At this point, they're just called followers of the way. Anyone who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's already wreaked havoc in Jerusalem. Now he's going up to Damascus to try to destroy the Christian movement there. Let me just say this. This is a chilling story. Whatever else we can say about the man named Saul, later called by his Roman name Paul, whatever we can say about it, understand this. At this point in the story, he is perfectly happy. He is happy in his bigotry. He is satisfied in his fanaticism. He is proud of his anti-Christ, anti-Christian hatred. Understand this. At this point in the story, he feels no need for Jesus. Because in his mind, Jesus is a corpse. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He believes that Jesus is still buried somewhere in some unmarked grave down around Jerusalem. He's probably at this point in his early 30s. He, uh, he would be, in terms of the Judaism of his day, in Galatians 1, he says, you know my background in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Then he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries, being extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Understand this. Football, football fans. To the Jews of that day, Saul was a five-star recruit. He's a superstar rising 
in the Jewish establishment. So we can mark it down so far. Saul was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for him. He's breathing out threats against the Lord. What would you say about Saul? He's a religious fanatic. He's a bigot. He's a zealot. He is. Sometimes today we talk about people who are seekers. He's the, whatever the opposite of a seeker is, that's what Saul is at the start of this story. In fact, Saul was so far gone, I can imagine that in the early assemblies in Jerusalem, uh, after Saul had gone through, when they had their Wednesday night prayer meeting and they had their prayer, the list of people they were praying for, I imagine somebody might have said, let's pray for Saul because he is killing us. Let's pray that God would bring him to Jesus and somebody else would go, no way, no way. A man like that would never become a Christian. Right over the story of his life at the beginning, he's hopeless. He's not just lost. He is completely lost. He is hopeless. And as we're going to see, a man like that is on a collision course with God, with God. Verses three through nine now. Saul's conversion. Saul's conversion. Back in the book of Galatians, I'm going back and forth because this is what I'm teaching this week and the next couple of weeks. It's kind of up in my head, but when Paul tells the story in Galatians one, he says, I was zealous for the traditions of my father. And then he says, the word that changed us, that, that changed the whole story. But, but, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. But, the great divine but, watch this. What we're about to see here is pure, sovereign grace. I've already told you, he wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't praying, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. He hated Jesus and he hated the followers of Jesus. God didn't ask permission. He didn't come to Saul and say, is it okay if I interrupt your life? God just came. Pure, sovereign grace. Now we read, as he traveled, he's coming from Jerusalem down here up to Damascus. Same city, same city today, Damascus and Syria. He was nearing Damascus, still breathing out threats. A light from heaven suddenly shined around him, falling to the ground. The light blinded him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? I underline that next word. Why are you persecuting me? Me. But number one, number one, he thought Jesus was dead. Number two, understand what the Lord is saying here. Why are you persecuting me? What he's saying is, you touch my kids. You touch me. You touch my followers. You touch me. You hurt the believers in me. You have hurt me personally. Just dot, dot, dot. Jesus takes it personally. When anyone attacks the children of God. Verse 5. He doesn't know what's going on. So he says, who are you, Lord? He doesn't know. He thought Jesus was dead. All of a sudden, he's discovering that the Son of God not only is not dead, he's alive. Not only is he alive, he is exalted to the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And suddenly, I mean, blinded on the ground, on the road to Damascus, he's trying to figure this out. And here's the answer. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. 
Bam! Just like that. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, I don't know. I don't know where in this process he was converted. Maybe he was converted right here. I tend to think it was right here. He's blind. He's confused. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But go to the city. You'll be told what to do. Watch this. The hound of heaven is on the case. The hound of heaven is on the trail. The Holy Spirit is going after his man. And I kind of think it's like this. It's like this. That, uh, that, uh, that morning when Paul, when Saul got up, he had no idea what was about to happen, right? Three hours earlier, he had no idea what was about to happen. Two hours earlier, two hours before, he's just breathing out threats against the Lord. One hour, he has no idea what's about to happen. Ten minutes before, he's still hating Jesus. And five minutes before, he's still hating on Jesus. And 30 seconds before, he has no idea. And suddenly, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. He's not got a clue. 5, 4, 3. The Holy Spirit's on the case. 2, 1. Bam! The light shines. He's knocked down to the ground. He's blinded. And suddenly, Jesus steps into his life. Brothers and sisters, that's salvation. That's what we mean when we say salvation is of the Lord. Jesus didn't come and say, do you mind if I interrupt your life? He just came blowing into his life. When he came in, everything, everything changed. Watch this. When God calls a man like that, he comes. God calls a man like that, he comes. Sometimes, let me just... Let me just say, the most, the most basic thing I know about salvation is this. It's repeated a number of times in the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. Sometimes we like to say in our testimony meetings, I found the Lord. And it's a good thing to say. I found the Lord, we say. That's good. But just remember something. The Lord found you before you found Him. And if He didn't find you first, you would never find him. Salvation is of the Lord. I love the story of the, of, from Harry Ironside, great Bible teacher of another two generations ago, 18 years up at Moody Church in Chicago. We still use his, his Bible studies. One of his sermons, Harry Ironside said that, uh, there was a new convert, a new convert at a Wednesday night prayer meeting and they asked for testimonies and the new convert stood up and gave great glory to God. And talked about his sin. And talked about how rough his life had been. And talked about what Jesus Christ had done to him. And gave great glory to God. And when the service was over, one of the older, older brethren, one of the older brethren of the assembly, came to him and said, Now, now my brother, what you shared was very good. But all you did was talk about the Lord's part in your salvation. Why don't you tell us about your part? And the young man thought from me. And he said, my part of salvation? My part was to run away from God as fast as I could. And God's part was to run after me and find me. Give God the glory for your salvation. It's always of the Lord. 
One thing we learn from the story of, of Saul's conversion, that salvation is all, and you underline that, salvation is all of grace. Look how God humbles this proud Pharisee. One moment he's breathing out threats. Now he's blind and being led by the hand into Damascus. Third part of the story, Saul's baptism, verses 10 through 18. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Beautiful. What a man. What a man. This is one of the, we would call him a minor character. That's not a fair thing. But he's just, he just, he's nowhere. He's nowhere. We don't know anything else about him. In this one moment, he steps on the stage of biblical history. He plays his part. And it's a crucial part. Then he steps off the stage and we know nothing else about him. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! He doesn't have any idea. Here I am, Lord, he replied. By the way, that's always... By the way, that's always... That's always the right answer when God calls. Here I am. What do you want, Lord? Verse 11... Get up and go to the street called Straight. Okay, there's just so much here. Did you know the street called Straight? It was the major east-west thoroughfare through Damascus. It's still there today. If you go to Damascus and Syria today, you can go to Straight Street. It's the exact street from 2,000 years ago. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is Praying there. Once he was persecuting. Now he's down on his knees praying to God. Blind. Trying to figure out what God is doing. In a vision, Saul has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Look at verse 13. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard from many people about this man. How much harm he has done. Uh, Lord, are you sure about this? Before I go see this guy, are you sure? Because he has been killing people down there and putting people in prison down there in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Wait a minute. Number one, I don't blame Ananias for hesitating. This guy's a killer. He's a murderous blasphemer. He hates Jesus. He has been throwing people in. He was cheering when Stephen was stoned. I don't blame Ananias for hesitating. Stop here and say something. Three nevers. We don't know anything else about Ananias. Except as far as we can tell. He wasn't an elder. He wasn't a deacon. He wasn't an ordained minister. As we call that today. He wasn't a religious professional. He's an obscure saint. Never think that God can't use you. Never think that God can't use you. Never think you're too small or too unimportant for God to use. God can use you. Number two, never be afraid to do God's will. God bless Ananias. He was scared, but he went to see Saul anyway. Number three, and this is probably the most important, never underestimate the value of just one life, one to Christ. If Ananias never won anybody else to the Lord, if all he ever did in his life was to win one man, Saul of Tarsus. Think about that. He won the man who wrote half the New Testament and changed the world. Maybe the most important person in history. So we read on. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument. He's blind. He's praying. He's confused. But I've already chosen him to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and to Israelites. I will show him how much, wow, here's the last line, how much he must suffer for my name. Look at the change that's taking place. From persecutor to preacher, from Israel to the nations, from success to suffering. God already had plans for his man. So Ananias, later on the text you'll see right there, he does three things. He lays his hands on him. That's Old Testament. That's a sign of fellowship. That's a sign of spiritual equality. It must have taken a great deal of faith for Ananias to lay his hands on this man. Number two, he called him Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Recognizing him as a baby Christian in the family of God. And third, he baptizes him as a fellow believer in Christ. So somebody says, okay, Pastor Ray, what is true conversion? This, my friends, this, this, this is true conversion. There's a new revelation. He met the Lord. There's a new desire. He's praying now. There's a new obedience. He's baptized. There's a new fellowship. He's among the believers. There's a new calling. He's preaching Jesus. There's a new problem. As we're going to see, he's got opposition. And there's new result. He's going to grow in grace. This, this, this is what we believe in. This is what we talk about when we talk about conversion. So, now, Saul has been struck down on the road to Damascus. He's been brought in blind. He's, uh, uh, and, and, and then he meets Ananias. Ananias lays hands on him, baptizes him. He's now clearly in the family of God. And we're told something like scales. Nobody knows. Something like scales fell from his eyes. Once he was blind, now he can see. He got up and ate. And his appetite returned. So what's he going to do? What would you do if you were Saul of Damascus? Saul of Tarsus coming into Damascus. Maybe the rest of us would go and say, let's pray over this for a while. He starts to preach. Look at verse 19. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, straightway, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And this is what he said. This is so amazing. He is the Son of God. He didn't even believe he was alive a few days ago. Now he's not only preaching, he's going into the he's going into the lion's den. He's going into the jaws of the bear. He's going into the synagogues. And he's preaching the name of the one whose followers he once tried to kill. And all who heard him, I guess it says, verse 21, they were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc? For those who called on this name, and he came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoner to the chief priest. Yes, this is the guy. Verse 22, but Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus because now he's proving Jesus is the Messiah. Read on. After many days had passed, the Jews, his former compatriots, they conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, the gates of Damascus, intending to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. By the way, do you remember when we, uh, when we studied through 2 Corinthians not that many months ago? 
Paul, when he's listing, there's, you know, he talks at the end of 2 Corinthians, last few chapters, about suffering reproach for the name of Christ. He talks about all the terrible things that happened to him, how, the things he suffered because of his faith. You know what comes at the very end of this list? The very thing at the end of that law? He was beaten and shipwrecked and beaten with rods and all that. But the thing he records at the end, Lord in a basket, made to run away as if he were a fugitive and a criminal. That was a humiliating moment for a once proud Pharisee. He never forgot. And one thing, many years later, his enemies in the churches up there in Greece, they used this against him. Oh yeah, you're so brave. Oh yeah, you're so strong. Look at you. You had to run away. They had to put you in a fish basket and lower you through the lower you across the walls. You had to run away from all this trouble. It's quite a way God's preparing his man here. There's a pattern in his life that's going to develop from right here. Bold witness, angry opposition, constant movement, shameful reproach, and multitudes saved. Paul's ministry in Jerusalem now, verses 26 through 29. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you are now Saul of Tarsus, you've switched teams, right? You're now preaching the faith you once tried to destroy. Name the most dangerous place on earth if you are Saul of Tarsus. He's now public enemy number one down there in Jerusalem. They hate him. The Jewish leadership hates him now. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Well, I guess so, since they didn't really think he was a disciple. So, look, God raises up Barnabas, son of encouragement, who took him and brought him to the apostles and explained how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him. And by the way, by the way, by the way, that woman, Joy Behar, is a fool. She's a fool. She's the one who made fun of Mike Pence on The View just a few days ago uh, because he talks, he hears Jesus talks to him. And she went, isn't that a sign of mental illness? No. The greatest people in the Bible heard the voice of the Lord. And Barnabas said, not only has Saul seen Jesus Jesus has talked to him and how in Damascus he has spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So why, why, watch this, watch this. Why would, why would Saul go to Jerusalem? Two reasons. Is it the, is it the most dangerous place on earth for him? Yes, it is. So why would he go? Number one, because of the great commission. They need Jesus too. And number two, for him, it's not the most dangerous place on earth. You know the safest place on earth? It's in the will of God. The safest place for you this morning is in the will of God. Saul knew that nobody could touch him as long as God wanted him alive. As they say, a man of God is immortal until his work on earth is done. So in that sense, as dangerous as it was, Saul was safer in Jerusalem than anywhere else on the earth. Saul's impact. Now we're coming to the end of the story. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. You know we're moving out now. We're moving out toward the Gentiles. The church had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord. Encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So let me wrap this story up. Shall we? What a story. What a story. 
What has happened to Saul of Tarsus? Once he hated believers. Now he seeks their fellowship. Once he hated the truth. Now he lives by the truth. Once he hated the gospel. Now he preaches the gospel. Once he was known primarily as Saul, his Hebrew name. Now, as he goes out into the Gentile territories, he's going to be called Paul, his Roman name. Once he was a terrorist. Now he is an evangelist. What has happened? Christ has come in. Christ has come in. Christ has come in. Saul has been converted. Everything now is changed. And when he comes to the end of the story in Galatians 1, They said, he who once persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. In the Galatians 1, it says, and they, the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea, they glorified God because of me. Four take-home truths, and we are done. Number one, Christianity is supremely a religion of conversion. A religion of conversion. You take that out, we've got nothing to say. You take that out, we're just a religious, a, a religious tea party group. Christianity says what you were isn't what you are. And what you are is not what you're going to be. The power of Jesus is present to convert anyone, anyone who cries out to him. So that's number one. Our faith is a religion of conversion. Number two, the worst sinners often make The best saints. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I I read this somewhere. I really like this. God doesn't recruit heroes. From time to time, God just steps into the devil's camp and finds the meanest, orneriest, baddest sinner he can find and without asking permission, just grabs him and drags him into kingdom of God so the whole world will know that the power of the gospel is still real today the worst sinners often make the best saints number three no one no one is beyond the reach of God's grace if God can save a man like Saul he can save anyone anyone we just say it again Five minutes before it happened, Saul had no idea his life was about to be radically changed. There are people out there today who are going to be saved tomorrow and they don't know it yet. There are people out there all around us who are going to be saved this next week. They're on their way in. They don't even know it yet. There's some people out there this morning far gone in sin and the Holy Spirit is reeling them in. and They have no idea what's about to happen to them. But God. But God. But God. Number four. Number four. Let us then keep on praying and never give up. Okay? Let us keep on praying and never give up. For our loved ones. Never, never stop praying for people who are far gone. Never stop praying for people, even if you think it's impossible. Never stop praying for those who were once in the church and now gone out as prodigals. Let us then keep on praying and never give up. Why? Watch this. Because the worse the rebellion, the greater 
will be the glory when they come into the kingdom of God. Jesus is still in the life-changing business. My friends, my friends, keep on praying. Keep on spreading the good news. Keep on preaching the gospel. Keep on telling the story. Because there is no case too hopeless for the great physician. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. We need to be reminded. Sometimes we lose hope. We get discouraged. We see some people we think they'll never come in. They seem so rebellious. Some prodigals seem so hardened. Some don't even want to hear. We thank you for this story. Because if you can save Saul, you can save anybody. So we pray for our loved ones and friends. Draw them. Draw them. Use us, Lord. Give us that spirit of boldness and perseverance. And, Lord, we shall give you the glory. Give us faith. Do your work. Help us to believe and never to doubt. There are no hopeless cases. Use us, Lord, and build our faith to believe in Jesus. Share the good news this week. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. Come see us on the internet at www.keepbelieving.com. We'd love to hear from you this week. Join us for the next podcast from Keep Believing Ministries.